Be prepared for the unexpected. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 15. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you'd open your word to us. We pray that you'd make us wise according to it. We pray that you would cause us to stand in wonder under it. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One snowy, cold Baltimore evening, something unexpected happened. While we were sitting around inside, there was a sudden blaring of fire engine sirens, and looking out onto the snowy street, the colored lights of the fire engine mingled with green and red lights that played through the falling snow and off of the buildings, and there appeared an unexpected figure. Sitting on top of the fire engine was Santa Claus, pitching candy to all of the kids running out into the winter street. This morning in the book of Acts, we'll see the Apostle Paul seeing an unexpected figure when he encounters the unexpected Macedonian. The unexpected Macedonian. And as we look at this, we'll see the Macedonian man and then the Macedonian woman. So first of all, let's look at the Macedonian man. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. Acts 16, verse 9. And it says there, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now the context is this. The Apostle Paul has tried three times to enter into the Roman region of Asia. Now Asia is modern-day Turkey. It's where the city of Ephesus is. And we read these words in the text right before the text we're looking at this morning. In verse 6 through 8 in chapter 16, it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up through Mycenae and attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them, so passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. Now Paul's trying to get into the region of Asia. Three times he's tried, three times he's been thwarted. He's had to go on this long, circuitous route trying to get in this place or that, prevented in doing so, and now he gets this vision in the night of a man of Macedonia. God directs them to Macedonia first. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. He's got a vision here of a man of Macedonia. Now let's take ourselves outside of our own context. We're standing 2,000 years after the fact. But if you're living in the first century, and you hear someone has a vision of a man of Macedonia, who do you think that might bring to mind? Now there's a towering figure at this time. I'm not saying that the Apostle Paul had a vision of this specific person, but if you're reading this in the first century, I believe this motif will come to your mind. I believe it's intentional on the part of God. In the first century, the man of Macedonia would be Alexander the Great in the popular mindset. Going on to verse 10 here. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, to give you some idea here, so it's not such an abstraction, what you're looking at here is a map of modern-day Greece. This is where modern-day Greece would be. This is modern-day Turkey here. This is Asia, where Asia begins, and this is where Europe begins. Black Sea's up here. Mediterranean seas down here. You got this thin strip of water here going through these two seas called the Bosporus. Now over here, you've got this region of Asia, 
and you've got a province here called Lydia, and that's where the Apostle Paul wants to go. He wants to go right here. But instead, God directs him the other way. He keeps trying to get into this region, and God forces him through various means, including this vision now, to go over to Macedonia. Now, this red circle here represents the city of Philippi, where he's going to end up. So he's going across on a ship all the way over to Macedonia. So instead of preaching the gospel in Asia, he ends up bringing the gospel to Europe. And we're going to see why in a minute, and all the symbolism involved in this. God does whatever God desires to do. He sent the Macedonians forth in history about 350 years to 450, 400 years prior to this ministry of the Apostle Paul. The Macedonians went out to the very ends of the earth. Alexander the Great took his army to the north and conquered part of Europe, and then he headed down south across into Asia. He went down into Egypt. He went out through Iran and out to Central Asia and all the way out to India. He brings forth the world in one language. God did this. God caused this kingdom to go forth and to do these things in his own timing. And now he brings the gospel back to Macedonia with that same language God's going to do whatever God's going to do. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God's going to do whatever God's going to do with the kings of the earth. God's going to do whatever God's going to do with empires. God's going to do whatever God's going to do in municipalities. God will do what God will do here in Buda. We should seek for God to do mighty things in our time and place. Three times was a charm for Peter, remember, going to the household of Cornelius in Caesarea. Three times now is a charm for the Apostle Paul, thinking he's going to Asia, but instead is going over to Macedonia into Europe. Going on to verse 11 in chapter 16. It says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days. Now, what I want you to do is take a look at the grand sweep of history and think of the wisdom of God in doing things the way that he did. Think of all the little kingdoms and all the language groups and ethnicities stretching themselves out through what is modern-day Turkey and the, the pale of Greek settlement, and then you start getting out into Iraq and you start getting out into Iran and Central Asia, and you've got all these people speaking these different languages, all these little different kingdoms, and yet God's power brings conquest. And through that, through a pagan king, comes one language. So the Apostle Paul here ends up in Philippi. What's that? Philippi means Philip's city. Once again, we've got this idea of Alexander lying in the background. Alexander's dad, Philip, conquered and renamed this Thracian city. God moved the history of the world to its Macedonian moment. Greekish Macedonian hillbillies, that's what the Greeks thought about the Macedonians. They lived just north of Greece proper. They spoke the Greek language, and then they rose up in power and conquered all of Greece. Philip conquered Greece, and his son, Alexander the Great, conquered the world. He went out into the Middle East. He went out into Central Asia all the way to India, and it's fascinating, friends. You know, when I went to Pakistan several years ago, I was in Punjab, 
It's a province all the way on the far eastern side of Pakistan. It borders India. I flew into a city called Multan, and I'm going through this, this airport, and it's got all these murals of all the great events in the history of Multan, and then there's a mural there of Alexander the Great, all the way out there, conquered the city of Multan. Everyone at the time when the Apostle Paul arrives in Macedonia and is unpacking his world mission, at a time when the Apostle Paul is paving the way for the gospel going to the nations and to the Gentiles, and in his wake, apostles and followers of Christ are going to go out to the ends of the earth. At that time, everyone is speaking one language. They're speaking Greek. They're sharing one culture by Paul's time. If you went out into Afghanistan and Pakistan and parts of India at the time when this is happening with the Apostle Paul, you would find Greek people there. You would find people in those lands who weren't Greek that were speaking Greek. And God causes the gospel to go out, go out through the roads and through the byways and the highways and the waterways on this language that God has paved, just like English today. You can preach the gospel almost anywhere at that time. You could do it with Greek. Augustus was victorious here at Philippi, at the Battle of Philippi. He became emperor then in 42 BC. Veterans from this war were settled in this miniature Rome in Philippi. And now, after all of history is brought to its fullest ripeness by the sovereign hand of God, King Jesus is coming to take what is his. Can I hear an amen to that? Because King Jesus is coming to take what is his here and now too. King Jesus is coming to take what is his in the Greco-Roman world and King Jesus is coming to take what is his in the here and now. He's coming to take what is here and now his in central Texas. I tried just about everything from sealing the doors and windows to using an air purifier but the dust always piled up on the desk in my office. It's inevitable and you can't stop it. God's sovereign hand on history is like that. It's inevitable, and you can't stop it. People thinking they can act apart from God. People thinking that their actions are exclusively for their own glory. People serving false gods with their actions and giving them the glory. But God moves everything and all of us to his desired ends, and he will have all the glory. Can I hear an amen to that? So we've seen the Macedonian man. Now we're going to see the Macedonian woman. And as you look at the Macedonian woman, I want to remind you once again, don't just look at this as though you're reading literature. Look at the symbolism of this. Look at what God's doing by his powerful hand and arranging all of history. Look at the irony of what is about to happen now with the Macedonian woman. Verse 13 in chapter 16. And on the Sabbath... Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, it's the Sabbath day. They're going down to the riverside because there's probably no synagogue in Philippi. In Jewish culture, if you got 10 men, 10 Jewish men together, you can create a synagogue, and so you build a house of worship. But if you don't have that, you don't do that. So instead, you find a place to worship. You find a place of prayer. You find a place where you engage in worship, sort of like a chapel instead of a church. And so, since there's apparently no synagogue avail available in Philippi, Paul heads down to the riverside. 
Paul heads down in Greek to the enomizomen prosukin. The enomizomen prosukin. Prosukin, that's where we get our word proskineo from. Worship. It means a customary place of prayer. Why down to a riverside? Well, because Jews in the first century are engaging in acts of cleansing before they engage in worship. And so if you came to a town that didn't have a large enough population of Jews, a town that maybe had a small number of Jewish people and maybe had God-fearers of the Gentiles there, you would go to the riverside, and this would be a place where people would cleanse themselves and prepare and engage in acts of worship. Paul goes there, and there are people there. There's God-fearers there. There's women who believe in the true and living God there. Paul sat down and spoke the gospel to them. Now, I want to say this, friends. Not everyone is an evangelist, but everyone should evangelize. Kids, listen up. Not everyone is called to the permanent ministry of evangelism, but everyone is called to evangelize. And look what Paul did. It's very simple. And I want to submit this is a good model to engage in. Look what Paul does. does. Paul looked for a good spot. Paul looked for some people. Paul spoke to them. Paul looked for a good spot. Paul looked for some people. Paul spoke to them. You know, so often when we engage in evangelism or don't, I've heard this over the years, it's sort of like when you talk about what's the will of God and, and we got to think that we go in a closet somewhere and we pray and we're asking for some vision and we're hoping that fire will come down from heaven or we'll get a vision of an angel and God will come and speak to us. And it's the same way with evangelism. We're always looking for some methodology. We're always trying to figure out what's the best way to do it. Well, friends, just do it. Pray to God. Ask him to send you to people. Ask God to send people to you. And then pray that he might give you the courage to open up your mouth and then just speak the truth to them. Paul looked for a good spot. Paul looked for some people. Paul spoke to them. Going on to verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now here's the irony of this. The man of Macedonia turns out to be a woman of Asia. Let me show you this map again. So she's over here. She's got her business over here in Macedonia in the city of Philippi. But she's actually from here. She's from the city of Thyatira. Now you can't see this now, but at the very center of this region of Asia, you've got this, this red circle here, but it's over the province of Lydia. That's the name of the main region there in Asia that the Apostle Paul wants to go to. And here we have a woman in Macedonia, in the city of Philippi, but she's actually from Thyatira, and her name is Lydia. She's from Thyatira, a city founded as a Macedonian colony in the older kingdom of Lydia. This woman is dripping with symbolism. She sells royal clothing. She sells garments that are dyed purple. Now, purple garments are what kings wear. If you guys have read the Iliad, you know that all the kings in there, all the Greek kings, they wear purple robes. Roman emperors wear purple robes. Royals in this region wear purple. It's very expensive. It's drawn from the sea snail gland fluid that's dried in the sun and harvested at just the right moment. And so royals wear purple, and people that want to look like royals wear purple. It's just like today, right? Here's how rich people look, and here's how people that have some money try to look like the way that rich people look. And that's what she's engaging in. Lydia's selling purple garments in the city of Philippi. Now think about it. 
Here's a city that was destroyed by the Romans and resettled by veterans of Roman wars maybe 80 years before this. It's a new city filled with money. It's a new city filled with people who've got various resources and want to look above their station in life. It's something like Las Vegas. Got new money, new people, roaming around, trying to look like old money, and here is this woman, Lydia, selling purple royal garments to these people. Lydia was saved here. The Lord opened her heart, as he does for everyone who believes, and look what happens now. Lydia is now a royal attendant. Here's a woman who sells garments for royalty. She's an attendant to those who want to look like monarchs. And now Lydia is now a royal attendant for the true king. Remember her king, Jesus wore a purple robe and a crown of thorns. And so now she serves the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 15, after she was baptized and her household as well, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Once again, friends, just like last week as we looked at Cornelius' household in Caesarea, we see a whole household salvation and baptism. There are four of these household baptisms in Acts. They're very prominent, showing forth baptism in the book of Acts. We saw Cornelius' household baptized in Caesarea last week. Now we have Lydia of Thyatira's household being baptized in Philippi. Next, we would see the Philippian jailer and his entire household believe and be baptized. And finally, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, his whole household is baptized. And what's the point, friends? God is interested in individuals. But God operates on a larger scale than that. I don't know how many times I've heard this before uh, at our old Christian school out in California. You meet parents, and their kids are about 12 years old, and they say they believe, but the parents don't want to get them baptized yet. And the parents will say something like this. I don't want to force my faith on my kids. I want them to make up their own decision. Is that how the Bible works? Is that how the history of the church has worked? I submit it hasn't. In fact, the vast majority of church history and history itself, and what the Bible sets forth is something like this. Dad believes or mom believes, the household now believes. Dad believes, mom believes, gets baptized, the household gets baptized. The tribal chief comes to submit to the king of kings and lord of lords and get baptized, the tribe goes down to the river and gets baptized. The king comes to believe in the true king and gets baptized. The kingdom is baptized. The emperor believes and is baptized, and the empire is baptized. And guess what? It's stuck. It's stuck. Because Jesus is about something big. Jesus is about something huge. Jesus is about saving people in communities. Jesus likes to save families. And can I hear an amen to that? And they all say the same thing. Stay and teach us. Acts chapter 10, verse 48. Back at Cornelius' household. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to remain for some days. They're fulfilling the great commission. Jesus said, teach them all I have commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm not into these revival meetings. 
They're real big back in the old days. Now it's mostly on TV. But if we were living here in Buda, say around 1930 or so, the big revival would come to town, right? Minister James T. Reeves coming to town. He set up a circus tent. Everybody goes over there for a week, and they got us a revival, and then the guy leaves. That's not how that works in the Bible. People come to believe. They're baptized. They come into community, and then you teach them. You teach them. You teach them the Word of God. You grow and mature them. You build a church in a place. You build a community. You build churches and schools. You build a culture. Stay and teach us. Stay and teach us. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to do. And that is the pattern of the Bible. And that's what we're doing right here, right here in Buda. Stay and teach us. We're going to teach the people around us through words and actions, the ways of the living God. Our kids are going to rise up and bless the Lord in this time and place. And by God's grace, they will have children, and their children's children will inherit the land, and we will see God's glory, maybe not in our own time, but we're staying here, and we're teaching them the ways of the living God. It's almost June. We should have expected sunny skies and warmer weather when I was out in Los Angeles. But the weather report said cold and rainy through the end of May. That spring had peculiarly unexpected weather. Well, today we've seen the Apostle Paul experience an unexpected situation. This morning we've seen the Macedonian man and we've seen the Macedonian woman as we looked at the unexpected Macedonian. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you've worked in history. Oh, your powerful hand. You move all things in your own timing, and you bring all things gloriously together in your own timing. May we look upon these words even this day and rejoice in your word, but also rejoice in knowing you're moving all things for your own glory in our time and place. Help us to take our part in this great tapestry, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.